Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 6. As we celebrate six years of the show, we are exploring a very important theme, publication. What does publication mean for you as a writer? What are the choices available? And how does that impact both you and your book? We'll be talking with multiple writers on their publication experience this season, helping you get closer to publication as well. Hi, Renee. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's it's always a treat to have someone on who's not only an incredible writer, but also a friend of the podcast and a course alum. So yes, excited to have that connection as well, that you went from a run through next draft to a publishing deal, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also a grad of the Sarah Selecki um, course. So True. that's how I found your podcast. <laughs> I know we're all connected. Yes. We're all connected. Um, it's such a wonderful writing community that it makes me so happy when everybody comes together. Absolutely. And as another piece of sort of elaborating the stories in the writing community, we spend so much time talking about traditional publishing versus independent publishing. And I, in talking to you about your experience with your novel, it was enlightening to know that there is, and there are, I'm sure even beyond Canada, different models than the ones most of us who spend a lot of time researching and nerding out on the publication process know that it isn't just get an agent, try to get in with the big five, or get something like vellum and put the book out yourself. So I wanted to have you on and and basically benefit from your experience going through the process in Canada to learn what's different about it and what your experience was like. So I guess I'll start with how does it start? So when you knew you had a book, your your novel was ready, what was the next step you took and and how did it unfold from the standpoint of wanting to publish in Canada? Yeah. So, I mean, as you were saying, I would say that in in Canada and probably elsewhere, the American narrative dominates. Um, So, you know, if you're listening to podcasts or looking at what other authors are doing and primarily consuming uh, media from the United States, you're going to assume that you need an agent and that you need to be published with the big five publishers. Um, But the publishing landscape in Canada was was very different. Um, We did have, we do have uh, Canadian agents, but very few. Um, So I remember reading at some point that there were only like 30 agents in all of Canada. Um, And so, yes, it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so immediately you're thinking, 
how are they servicing everyone in this country? Um, and we do also have, you know, divisions of the big five publishers, but we also have a lot of smaller publishing companies throughout the country, um, many of which accept unsolicited manuscripts, uh, meaning you get to send them uh, usually a summary and a select number of pages from your from your work. Um, so knowing that it was published, uh, it was possible to get published without an agent in Canada. Um, and given how quickly I, I wanted to get the book out, um, I knew that I didn't really have time to go through the, the process of querying agents. Um, so just to, to give everyone a little background, um, I am an archivist and uh, I wrote a book about a tragic story um, of a fire that occurred on campus um, in 1941. And as I was writing the book, I realized that uh, the 80th anniversary of the fire was within two years. Um, and so I really wanted to get it out uh, by that date so that we could commemorate the fire and um, bring that history to life for a new generation. Um, and so knowing that I really wanted to get it out quickly uh, definitely influenced my decision to just query to publishers instead. Um, so yeah, once once I had the book, you know, revised with the help of your course, um, I, I sent it out to two local publishers uh, because the story has a much more local flavor. And I was I heard back relatively quickly and we were able to get a contract and the rest is history. <laughs> this is this is so refreshing because in general, when we think about speed with publishing, we think that it's necessary to do it all yourself, that you can either have a publisher involved or you can have speed. Right. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your selection of the publishers that you chose to send the book to based on, yes, there's a local component, but what other, what other questions did you have in mind when you looked for these publishers? Well, I knew that I wanted someone who had published um, historical fiction. Um, and so these two publishers uh, did that frequently. And I had read a lot of their books and I, I knew um, kind of what they were working on. Um, and so I was attracted to those immediately. And Luckily, I heard back from one of them really quickly. So, I mean, my timeline, I think, was unrealistic going into it. Um, and originally my publication date was for spring of 2022, um, which was, you know, six months after the anniversary, but um, I was able to talk with my editor and move it back. And she was really excited about the anniversary as well. Um, and so it was a very crunched timeline. And I, I think um, usually it takes a lot longer than that, um, but I'm happy that we were able to do it in in that timeline and just really work hard at getting it ready uh for the fall so when you say you heard back from them really quickly how how long is really quickly because i think you know those of us who've written a book and we send it out like an hour later feels like <laughs> an eternity <laughs> yeah. you sent it so what was if we can get in and just spread the timeline out for people a little bit yeah more. so I sent it out on July 1st of 2020 and 
I had a contract by September. So I think she must've asked me for my pages. Yeah. So the first thing of course, is they ask you to send the full manuscript. Um, And so I think that must've been in August. And uh, then after a few weeks, those are the most nerve wracking weeks when you're waiting to hear back on a full manuscript. Uh, Yeah. She, she offered me a contract. And so I was very happy about that. That's incredible. I'm so impressed. Yeah. (laughs) And so then what were the steps taken after that point? So how did you work together on the book or what was the process once you had the contract and you were moving towards publication? Because this is like the most mysterious part for people is absolutely they say yes. And then what is going on for so long between that point and when you get to hold the book or see it on a shelf? Yeah. So, I mean, I had already gone through the revision process myself uh, a few times. I think I was on draft three or four by that point. Um, But of course, there are always more edits that you can do. And so we really, we went through three stages of revision, um, the the other editor and myself. Um, And the first one was looking at the big picture. Uh, You know, she made suggestions on how we could change the story, um, some of which I, I took and some of which I didn't. Uh, so my my book has a dozen of characters and that was really informed by the archival records that I was drawing from. I really wanted to have a lot of perspectives and show how this fire had impacted a large number of people. Um, and so, you know, one of her initial suggestions was, can we have maybe fewer characters? Um, and that the way that I had written, it was very important to me. And so we were able to kind of figure it out together and um, reduce maybe a a few of them, but keep most of them uh, in place. And so it was those kinds of of larger picture um, edits. And then the second one, we really kind of start going through and arranging the book, um, changing the chapters around or, um, all of those kinds of things. And finally, the last one is the line edits. And we usually send it off to someone else who will also um, see it with a fresh pair of eyes, which is always helpful. Um, And so I I always had, usually I would look through, I would read through the book more than once, even within those three stages. Um, So by the the end, I had read my book probably 20 times. I don't know. Yeah, this is why at this point I always say people are fired from the job of knowing if their book is interesting or not. Because Absolutely. even our very favorite books, we're not going to read them 20 times in close, you know, in a close time window. Yeah. Yeah. And they get very boring after a while and you second guess everything because you're looking at it with a critical eye all the time. Um, so, yes, it's a very interesting process. Yep. And this was your second book. So I'm interested in what was different. I mean, this book was a novel, but I'm interested in the differences you experienced between your first book and your second with regard to the publishing system. So my first experience with publishing was actually very different. Um, I was also young at the time. I was 17, so I was a minor, and um, my mom was doing a lot of the the background work, uh, just talking to the editor and publishers. Um, But the fact that it was a memoir also changed um, the process a little bit, because they weren't giving me, um, they weren't telling me or, or 
talking to me about how to change the story because it was my story. And so really it was mostly um, line edits and just making sure that everything was, was in correct order. I'm really curious about choosing to publish a memoir at 17 and how that felt for you and what the impact was to have such a personal story out there at such a young age. Yeah. I mean, it, I didn't set out to write that book. Um, I lost my father to cancer when I was 14 and writing was just a way for me to process that grief and kind of learn to move on. And so at some point, I remember um, giving a few chapters to my mom for Mother's Day, um, being almost really scared to tell her that I had written our story, our family's story. Um, But of course, she was very supportive and was impressed by what I had done. And I think at some point she must have mentioned it to one of my teachers and the school got involved and, and, you know, had connections in the publishing industry. And we managed to get it out there and donate all the proceeds to a local charity um, related to cancer research. And so that was kind of a whirlwind for me. Um, You know, I was thrown into uh, the publishing industry without really wanting to at that point. Not that I didn't want to, but um, I hadn't really thought about it that much. Um, But I mean, it was a wonderful experience. It taught me a lot about publishing and I knew that I could do it the second time around, even though I waited 10 years before publishing the second book. Um, and in that time I was able to acquire a lot more experience and, you know, get my, my degrees in English literature and everything. Um, so I would say that the, the second publishing experience has been much more enjoyable because I was able to, to have a much more, much more hands-on experience, um, and really think about it as me starting my career. Absolutely. So as an archivist, I imagine you come across countless seeds for books. Yes. And I'm very curious about what drew you on this one. And also, how do you deal with all the ideas that must hit you all the time? And now that you have this ability and and know that you can get to publication, how do you manage yourself knowing how many stories there are that could be amazing books. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I've I've heard you say this before, you need to find something that will capture your attention for a few years. You're going to be working on this for a long time. And so most of my ideas for books, and I do have a list, have come from the archives. Um, So this one just really captured my attention, the story of the fire, um, you know, Having recently graduated from that university, I was only a few years out of um, undergrad, I think the fact that it had impacted students and I could relate to them in that way um, was a way that I connected with the story very deeply. Um, And in the archives, you look for one thing, but constantly find seven other things. Um, And so details about the story kept coming up for me. And I really felt haunted by the voices that I was encountering in the archives. Um, And I was working on a different book, but I was planning on starting a second graduate degree and knew that I didn't have the time to research that book. Um, And so when the idea for 
for this book came to me, um, I realized that I had acquired all of this knowledge and a very broad understanding of this event without intentionally researching it. Um, and so I was able to just dive into the story and explore on the page, which, which was really a gift and allowed me to write it so quickly. Um, and yeah, I mean, my I'm currently working on my next novel, which was also inspired by things that I found in the archives. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to get to all of them. I have a long career ahead of me, but um, it is about picking the ones that will really capture your imagination and attention and just diving in and doing additional research. So... So as an archivist, what advice would you give to people who may want to make use of archives? Because you're in there and that's your, that's your world. And, and I know that some people coming into it might be intimidated by where do I start? There's all this stuff. And so how do you, how do you engage with it? How do you enter it? And what do you recommend others do? I would say speak with the archivist. We're so happy to help you. And, you know, a lot of people think that we sit around reading everything in the archives all the time, which is not true. Um, but we do have a basic understanding of what is in our collections. And so if you come to us looking for a specific subject, we'll be able to point you in the right direction. Um, archival research is really a process of discovery and Oftentimes, if people are looking for something specific, they might not find it. But if you're looking for something broad, you will find treasures. Um, and so I would encourage everyone to, who is interested in, in historical fiction or archival research um, to just dive in and you will be surprised by what you find. Um, I had an author in this week uh, who was researching a topic and she was reading letters and you know the the letter writer was talking about the mice in the walls in the residence and she was saying you know these are the details that allow us to make this fiction come to life um and so there are so many gems hidden in the depths of the archives just waiting for you to find them and i encourage everyone to do research if they enjoy it i think this is a great point because it is about bringing this setting and the circumstances and the feeling that you as the reader are there. And at the same time, there is always this tension with historical fiction because like you said, you had a large number of characters that you felt loyalty to having researched their story. So I'm wondering how as a novelist, you know, you chose to make this a novel instead of a, you know, a historical account of the event. And I'm interested in the tension and, and how that can come out for novelists as well you know, how to use that research without being sort of shackled by it. Yeah, that was definitely one of the reasons I decided to fictionalize the book instead of just writing um, a, you know, nonfiction account of the fire, um, is that we did have a lot of details, but I didn't want to be shackled by the details. I wanted to be able to kind of explore and imagine and make my own conclusions. Um, and the other reason was I wanted to be respectful to the families of the people who had died and the families of the people who had even experienced the fire. Um, it's a small university community. I have heard back from people who have said, you know, my father was there that night. Uh, I had talked to families of the deceased um, descendants. 
before even writing the book. So I, I mean, I kept them at the forefront of my mind as I was writing and knowing that there was still a human connection there, even 80 years later, um, was very important to me. And so it's, it's about finding your own voice, but also being respectful to the people who came before you. Definitely. And then you also made a significant choice, which was to make the fire a character. So I'm interested in how that choice happened and, and what that was like to write um, a, a natural force as a character. The fire, the voice of the fire came to me very unexpectedly. Um, I was nearing the end of my first draft by that point. Uh, and I was doing something other than writing when I just heard it in my head. Uh, and I definitely think that was just a moment of pure inspiration, the kind of moments that you have to catch before they disappear. Um, and so I, I grabbed my phone and I just wrote down what I was hearing. And those words really are almost intact in the book. I didn't change very much. I added a lot, um, but that first impulse was just a moment of pure magic. Um, and I have been surprised by how, how people relate to this character. Um, I mean, I was inspired, you know, uh, I'm thinking of the book thief. Death is a character in that one. Um, I think that was a big inspiration for me. And just the idea of, of having the fire, but not having it be malicious or mean-spirited in any way, but just being there and, and talking about what kind of they would be seeing um, was an interesting experiment. And I had a lot of fun with it. It's always wonderful when you find a way to relate to an antagonist that's new. And it's so easy to make these characters and to to make the the sort of to take the easy out, I think. And to to turn it into melodrama and that isn't you know that isn't what happens when a character is simply trying to survive when you see their side of the story. And I I just haven't seen that done with natural forces in that way. And so I love that it snuck up on you in a way you weren't expecting. Yeah. And I mean, the voice is much more poetic than the rest of the book. It kind of allowed me to take pause and um, take a, a different kind of perspective. All the other ones are, um, um, I'm blanking, secondary characters. <laughs> yeah, ancillary supporting characters yeah and then um the the fire is in first person and so that's the only place in the book where i'm speaking with i um and so it just it gives a different flavor to the book i think and i'm so glad that my editor caught on to it and was like you need to develop this more um this is really the heart of the novel and it's going to be the thread that allows you to have so many characters while still making this a novel <laughs> I think this is a wonderful thing to hold on to about this because on the one hand, we can think about narratives about writing a book that has historical content and this idea, even being an archivist by profession, that you have access to all of this information and all of these details. And yet here is something that you couldn't have planned going into the writing of this book. And we're there and ready to embrace it. And 
I just find those stories really wonderful because no matter how well we plan something, no matter how well we structured or we think we have to know, people can't see me doing air quotes, but like <laughs> to quote, know how everything is going to turn out. Sometimes the things that we end up being the most excited about are things we couldn't know going in. Yeah. I, I don't think I would have ever imagined writing from the perspective of fire, but uh, when it came to me, I knew that it was something important. And so I, I encourage everyone to explore on the page. Yeah, I think it's also, I mean, how did you find that there was something because you weren't writing, you said, when this happened. So I think it's also about cultivating these states of mind where these kinds of flashes of inspiration come through. And it isn't just about like, having a, you know, a piece of graph paper and mapping out something really interesting has to go here. Did you, did you have any thoughts about what was happening when it came to you and how that could be expanded? I, I only remember I was home. Um, it was my reading week and, um, I just, I was sitting on the couch. I don't, I can't even remember what I was doing, but I, I think picking up on those ideas and those moments is something that Sarah Selecki has taught me is that, you know, she encourages us to have journals where we write down details that we see in the world. Um, and so that's a practice that I've developed and um, it's not something I do as much, but I still have that journal of little details that I can always draw from. And I think that's a useful exercise for writers. Yeah, definitely. There's You never know when you're going to use something. I mean, whenever we have unusual experiences, as we have so much these days, yeah. <laughs> and there's there's always some way that this might be something that a character might experience, or it might relate to someone's life experience. And having an archive of that at the ready is such a valuable resource. Have you found yourself going back to those as you're working on another book? I haven't looked at it recently, um, but it's something that I, I feel like I need to start using again and especially, you know, capturing all of these strange experiences that we are having. Um, given that I'm a historical fiction author, um, I often write about war and potentially plagues. Uh, and so I think it's difficult for us to imagine how they felt. But having spent two years in a pandemic now, I think I can relate to let's say, you know, people who got, who have gone through the, um, the influenza epidemic of 1918, which features in my next book. Um, and so, yeah, I think we just need to, to realize that, um, we can draw from our own experiences, even to write historical fiction, um, and just things set in, in other countries or in the past. Yeah. It's, I think it's often a question of just twisting the awareness slightly to include like what would this be like if we had no ability to be in contact with each other as easily as we do now yeah it's and it's thought. yeah it's those questions that allow us to really come up with exciting material yeah for sure I think it's but it is it's ugh, I don't know how you would write some things without having some sort of personal anchor into it I think that's truly astounding when people are able to do that. But I always feel like there has to be a way in. There has to be a way in to find the story that that kind of can expand to fit the space where the historical narrative was. Yeah. I mean, you know, people say, write what you know, but it doesn't mean that you need to write about being a woman in the 21st century. You could 
draw from your experience with grief or with love and being a woman in the 21st century might also translate well to um, being a woman in the the 19th century. um, So long as you can find those little pieces of information that uh, really are timeless. Yeah. I think the timeless themes, I mean, this is why we read historical fiction because we see, I find that one of the most inspiring things for me reading historical fiction is looking at how people have overcome challenges similar to the ones that we face currently. I'm mm-hmm. wondering if, is, is that something that comes up for you? Not particularly. Um, I mean, maybe I, I, I feel like I was at the beginning of this pandemic, I was interested in the 1918 influenza epidemic. Um, that quickly got old uh, as we were just living through, you know, a watershed moment in history. Um, but I think, you know, people keep calling these unprecedented times. They're really not. If you start looking at history, you will find examples of everything that we're living through right now, um, perhaps not related to technology and everything, but there are parallels. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, it's simply, I think that we just haven't experienced it ourselves. It's not that no one ever has. And in looking at all of these patterns through history, it's interesting to me because people say, well, if you're looking, you could see it coming. Exactly. That to me is fascinating. This sort of idea that there are these patterns and ideas and, you know, we can start to see them come together and we can see the sources in history, which is, I think, why historical fiction is always necessary and always enjoyable because mm-hmm. there is so much to relate to. Yeah. So how, how, how far are you into the book? How is it coming? I'm nearing the end of my first draft and um, I write by hand. So now I'm kind of typing it up, which is a whole other time frame. Um, but Yes, I'm excited to dive back into revision, which I think is really where I shine. Um, I really enjoy going back and revisiting. And um, so long as I have something on the page, I know that I can make it better. And so um, I'm looking forward to to trying your your course again this time. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's I do. I think that creating that course is like out of desperation because I found revision so difficult for such a long time. And I felt like, oh, I either have it or I don't. Um, And despite having family in film where, you know, everyone's always joking, you can fix it in post. Um, I didn't, I didn't know how to do that with the book rather than looking at it as a point when you can clarify and shift things around and make them, you know, make them stronger or turn the volume up on certain things and others. And that just makes it so much more fun. Yeah. Oh, yay. So for end of first draft, that's such a fun point. Are you feeling the thing that I always find fascinating about a first draft and then moving forward towards what it becomes is the difference in what ends up on the page between what I originally imagined it would be. So are you seeing that that difference between the story you had in your head and what you came up with? Absolutely. There are themes that just happened as I was writing um, that I need to strengthen now. And um, I'm looking forward to being able to do that in revision. Um, And there are things that I had planned for that didn't really fit. um, And that's okay, too. And we just need to work with the story that appears as we're as we're writing. Definitely. And so do you the other question I have about just going forward as you have 
another book. What is the relationship to your publisher going forward? Is it sort of understood that it's a book by book relationship in Canada since you submit directly? Or do you have an understanding with them that when you write another book, they want to see it? How is it left after the book comes out? Yeah, um, there's nothing in writing that would force me to send it to them first. But, um, you know, we've developed relationships and I would be happy to send them um, the draft or, or the revised version first so that they can decide if they would like to publish it or not. Um, you know, we've talked about working without agents. Uh, I'm, you know, this long term, I might want an agent. Um, it really definitely wasn't what I wanted for this first novel. Um, but I do think there is value in, in having an agent follow you as a collabor collaborator throughout your career. Um, and so potentially I might decide to query agents with this book. Um, and if so, then we might end up going with a different publisher, but I would be happy to work with my, my previous publisher again. Did you do um, an audiobook or other editions with yours? I'm just curious about how that works as well and what kind of rights you might retain or have access to. Yeah, I would have to revisit my contract. I know there was a clause there about audiobooks um, and it's something that they would be able to develop, but it's not something they do frequently. Um, you know, small publishers might not have the same resources as, as larger ones, um, but it's it really, for me, it was about working with people um, and I made really great connections. That's great. Yeah, this is an interesting thing that I'm seeing, at least in US publishing, is that if people that a lot of times people will want a traditional deal in the US, but they'll want to keep the audio rights because you, and then you need an agent to negotiate that. So I was right. curious what that happens there because you could then self publish the audiobook while having a traditional deal for the book itself and then retain all of the income from whatever sells with the audiobook, which I thought was quite clever <laughs> among people who I've seen do it. It's largely been um, nonfiction authors who've been able to pull that off. So I was just curious how that worked there. Yeah, I, that sounds like a great idea. And I mean, that's the beauty of, of having agents is that they come with all of this knowledge about the, the, the field and provide access to um, different kinds of opportunities, including translation and adaptation opportunities. And so if that is something that people are interested in, then um, an agent might be the way to go. Yeah. And then depending on the publisher you're with, they'll have different options and different places they can take the book. Yeah. And I mean, if, you know, people are happy to advocate for themselves and do their own research and kind of figure out um, how to negotiate things during the, the contract phase, um, then I'm sure that that's something pot potentially publishers would be happy to to negotiate with you. Yeah. And at this point, having two books out already... I think you're in a strong position to, to take it wherever you'd like. Yes, I'm looking forward to the next few years and seeing what happens. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Renee, for having this conversation about your book and about your experience and just hearing stories that there are other ways to do this. I think it's very important that we not get stuck into there's only one way to do X kind of narratives. And publishing is definitely one that has lots of room for options, depending on the market, depending on the location and depending on what you want. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This I've been a listener for so long that this kind of feels surreal, but um, it was such a nice conversation. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you.
Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.